Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. And today we have the pleasure of having Aaron Flores here today, um, a dietitian and the host of Dietitians Unplugged. Yeah, thanks Hi. for having me. Yeah, so glad to have you. This is like my first interview where I'm actually in a studio. I feel so professional. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. fun to actually have you here. Yeah. And we have Opal co-founder and nutrition director Julie Church here as well to get yeah. to talk. I'm glad to have you, Aaron. Yeah, no, I'm so excited. Yeah. Good. So tell us a little bit about you. Uh, yeah, so like you mentioned, I'm a dietitian. I... And based out of the LA area, I'm also a certified body trust provider. Uh, so that means I've done this uh, certification through Be Nourished in Portland, Oregon, which is really one of the best things I ever did. It allowed me to bring a lot of intuitive eating principles, health at every size principles, but it sort of coalesced it into bringing in lenses of weight stigma, feminist theory, social justice. It's really just been the icing on a lot of cake <laughs> and and and, and, uh, and training that I've gotten, I feel like it's been really one of the most useful things that's helped me develop my practice and develop a lot of how I want to be a dietitian in this world. So, how did you initially become a dietitian? How did you get into the field? Yeah, that's a that's a, it's only a, a three hour story. Um, so, I it's a career change for me. I okay. went back to school at thirty, and I had originally had dropped out of school. And I was like miserable in school. Like, and I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And I went and I worked in video games for for a good good amount of time. And this was in the dot-com world where like, you know, secretaries were making millions and driving <laughs> Lambos. And like, you know, I thought I was gonna crush it and, you know, make a gajillion dollars and I didn't. And, but like, so I loved playing video games, but I hated making them. I would come home Friday night and like cry that I had to go to work on Monday, horrible. Through all of that, I had issues with food. Ever since, you know, probably like in my teens, I remember issues of food coming up around my relationship with my family, relationships with other peers, especially trying to date, a lot of issues there. And eventually, as I was working in this dot-com world, I decided to really implement all the restrictive eating habits that people had taught me about. Wow. And uh, it was through all, through that lens that I wanted to be a dietitian. Mm. So I went back to school at 30 in the midst of like being super restrictive around food. Mm. And I'm like, I'm going to be the next Richard Simmons. I'm going to tell every person out there how to lose weight and keep it off. Because if this guy can, who can't? Mm. That was That's really like was my – entry point into this career. To be a weight loss coach oh, of sorts. Oh, 100%. Wow. Okay. 100%. Not what I expected to hear. Well, and and, and to say like, <laughs> and and listen, if this, as, as we talk more and more and your listeners listen more and more, to hear where I'm working now and to where I started, it's, it's a complete 180. Mm-hmm. It's a complete 180. And, and like where I am now feels so much better than where I was. Like this feels... Right. And where are you now? How would you describe that? That's a great question. My elevator pitch is I'm a dietitian who's going to help you learn to not just make peace with food in your body, but really understand why we eat, what are the societal factors that influence us living in our body, 
and why for some folks it really is unsafe and feels unsafe to live in our body and ultimately how to navigate that world without having to change your body. Beautiful. Not bad. No. Yeah. No, that, not good bad. Elevator speech. Yeah, I know. Th- that was off the cuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, it's recorded, so now you can put it on your website. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just a repeating clip. <laughs> so um, one of the things that strikes me is that, well, I, I've never actually met a male dietitian. There's a few of us. There are? A couple? Yeah. Uh, so if you talk to like our registration academy, right, I think they say like 10%, maybe a little bit more. Within the eating disorder community, it's much smaller. Okay. Within the eating disorder community and Hayes Health at Every Size community. It's just you. There's maybe. a I know, I know, I know two, I know one other gentleman, Jonah, in Boston, who's amazing. There's one other gentleman in LA that's truly Hayes. And there's another gentleman in LA who does a lot of great work with eating disorders. Some haze, but not fully haze. Okay. So I'm so curious what it's like for you to be one of few. Yeah. It depends on where I am. So here's, here's my example of how body trust has really informed my work. Two years ago, I would not have really thought about privilege in what I do. Um, but, but now I think about privilege all the time. I'm straight, I'm white, I'm cisgendered, I have, you know, enough financial means to be on vacation to come up here in Seattle with my family and hang out and then do this. Mm -hmm. I have almost all of the privileges. And I've navigated this world with almost all of the privileges. And I'm fat. So that's really the one sort of marginalization that has come in to this a lot. But within the eating disorder community, I am a marginalized voice. So being one of the only men doing this work and talking about body image and food, I can go to a conference and literally be the only male there. I'm comfortable with it, and I'm really thankful for all of the folks who embrace me in this community and don't, like, censor their conversation when I'm there. Like, I feel a part of this community. It is at times challenging to be the only one with like this perspective. It really dawned on me like at one conference last year where a colleague was like, really, you know, asked me, so, so what is it like for you here? And I was like, it's really hard. Like it's really hard because everyone is talking about male privilege and everyone's talking about white supremacy, which are conversations we need. But I felt in that moment, like I'm the personification of all of these things. Right. right? And even though that's not my, my slant, I'm feeling like, I'm the personification of all of these things that we're addressing in the room. And that was challenging, but I also know that I have a lot of folks that will just listen to me and and will want to hear how I'm feeling, Mm. which is nice. Right. You said earlier in the body trust training that you've done that you got this anti-oppressive feminist lens. Um, How has that changed your work just personally as a man and also as a dietitian, presumably also working with men? Yeah. Well, first off, you know, I, I think the reason body trust resonated so much with me is I grew up in a family where there's a lot of strong women mm-hmm. and and women who have um, and men who have spoken out against things that are wrong. So it's really I mean, my grandmother has been arrested for protesting multiple times. She still goes out, you know, in her wheelchair to to marches, <laughs> you know, awesome. in my family. I think that's always been there. I just got to connect it professionally. 
what it means for me professionally a lot is bringing in these conversations in the room and saying like, bodies are political. We don't have to think of that as like a red state, blue state thing. We just need to think about who gets the power. Uh, certain types of bodies get more power. And we can talk about it in this lens, right? And say like, what does it feel like to not have power? Uh, what does it feel like to be sort of oppressed by a system that marginalizes your body? I think that is the lens that it's brought in. And I will say that the, there have been some clients that say, I don't want to talk about that. That doesn't feel like my issue. And I'm like, okay, that's okay. And then they usually find another dietitian, which is fine because it makes space for the people who do want to have that conversation. Like it makes space for those folks to come in. So I bring up the politicalness and what's going on around us in this world all the time. I feel like I have to. Yes. Can you give an example of the way that you you bring yourself into it? So one of the first things I do with a lot of clients is mention bodies in the room. And I just say, like, I'm living in a larger body and I'm going to identify as fat and I'm going to use the word fat all the time. Not as a negative, but like really is my, this is my activism. I get to use it as a reclamation tool and help us get comfortable with this word again. And I usually say, like, if that brings something up for you, like, let's talk about it. Like you might be sitting in a smaller body. You might be in the same body. I just want to hear what your thoughts are about that. And rather than have it be sort of like unspoken, the the thing that I love about our community so much is we want people to feel safe in the room. Yes. And it's given what people live with in this world, that's a huge ask, mm -hmm. right? To get someone to feel safe in your room, you're really asking them a lot and a lot of trust. So if I can name body diversity and name weight bias from the beginning, I think it gives a framework that this is an okay conversation to have. Yeah, there's nothing taboo. There's in nothing that room. taboo about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, you could speak as a therapist, Carter, too, but I think the power of allowing for a client to work through their fat phobia in the midst of the work with you yeah. could be something that is so unique. Like that it's just not an opportunity that's offered to that many people doing this hard work in their eating disorder recovery. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that there are particular things that you're encountering with male clients versus female clients in terms of the, the work that you do in this sort of more political framework? You know, it's an interesting question because I get asked about because I'm the unicorn, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, or one of the unicorns out there doing talking about male body image and, and eating disorders is like, so what's the male body image experience? Right. And I think what I'm falling into more and more is that this idea of whoever's in my room, whether they identify as male, whether they identify as female, obviously that lens is, and that intersectionality is going to come up. But what I'm finding is that there's so much more in common than out of common. And I think the uniqueness of the male identified body image experience is that there's usually less space given to talk about it. Right. It's there. It might show up a little bit differently about like how it might manifest, but it's there. The level of oppression is still there. And my my theory, uh, no one hijacked this, right? This is Aaron Flores copyrighted. But my theory <laughs> is that because so many men have ex have lived with privilege, that when they live in larger bodies, it is that one, maybe one area where they've been marginalized and they don't know what it's like to butt up against that feeling. 
right? So to like, to feel unsafe in their body, this might be the only time they've ever experienced that. Mm. And that's a new feeling and that's really uncomfortable and hard to access. So I think that's one of the things I'm trying to like wrap my head around, right? Is how do we name that part, right? Like when someone comes to me and says, why are we talking about privilege so much? I, because it is wrapped up in everything you're experiencing. It might give us language for what you're experiencing, right? That really might name it instead of dancing around it, you know? So one of the things that I'm always saying in my office is, and then what? Because mm. they're always saying like, oh, well, I'm going to, if I eat this cookie, I'm going to gain weight. And then what? Right? right? And let's go down the rabbit hole as far as it goes until we get to, but then I'll be fat. Mm-hmm. Right? That's where like we need to talk. Right. I love um, the way that you just put that sort of idea of for a male that is white, cisgendered, heterosexual in particular, that fatness would be the place that they first experience that that first glimmer of lack of safety. Yeah. It's exciting to me that you're getting to have those conversations because I watch the men in my life just so scared to talk about any of the experiences that they have of their body. Mm -hmm. And those places where I do hear them start talking about it feel like an access point to the vulnerability that so many other marginalized communities and groups and peoples are desiring from the privileged person to go, hey, can we be vulnerable together? Can we be recognized in our vulnerability? And so though that would be an incredibly hard experience, it's also sort of the neutralizing space to be able to have access to all these other systems that are at play all the time anyways. Yeah. It could be a great entry point for a lot of people into this conversation. Absolutely. So speaking of some large systemic issues, I know that both of you are probably pretty plugged into the drama that's going on over at Weight Washers, or WW, as they call it these right. days. Don't get the name wrong. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a new lifestyle brand. Yeah. It's not about weight. It's about lifestyle. And it's called WW. So They tried to get that third W, but it was taken, right, by, by everyone. By everybody. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So for those that don't know, can either of you explain what this new campaign is that's going on? Julie? I, well, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to give a little backstory, too, with Weight Watchers uh, in saying that last summer there was something that caused quite a stir in our community as well, and that was that they had opened up their services for the summer to teens for free. Right. So that's something just to kind of give context. So that happened last summer. Our community responded with all sorts of things, including a free ebook that's out there. We'll put a link on here for that that had contributors from our community that have all sorts of resources and tools that allow for teens and others uh, to just access a different way of approaching one's health and wellness. And then this summer, which is what we're in the present moment of, uh, summer of 2019, WW is now offering a free app to 8 to 12-year-old children to lose weight. Yeah. Hey, what is it called? I forget. Kerbo. There we go. Thank you. Ugh. With a K. Kerbo. Yeah, with a K. Why? Like, what does that mean? Kerbo, you're eating. Yes, curb your appetite. Mm. Yeah. I have, would say. Yeah. Have like... either of you seen the app? <laughs> I have not downloaded it, personally. I've seen a lot of screenshots of it okay. and a couple people walking through it, but I, I personally have not downloaded it. I know. I, th- as I ask that, I'm like, why didn't I in order to research this topic? But okay. and w- at one because it feels dirty exactly. as soon as you do it. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to get near it. You know, I, yeah. yeah. It, it's weird how sick I feel. <laughs> yeah. 
speaking of <laughs> sickening, <laughs> what this is like a real this is a question that is hard <laughs> to even get out. What is the problem with this? Because obviously there's a huge one. Aside from everything, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, How do you parts okay. apart all of okay, the wrong? So, so, so here, here are my my takes. Um, high level, we can drill down into them. Okay. One is diet culture is capitalism. It is driven by the dollar. It is driven by you know making money off of people's own body hatred and fat phobia. Weight Watchers. They can and WW. I'm just going to call them Weight Watchers because there's no reason not to. Right. They can give me every corporate spin that they want, but in the end, they are a for-profit company. And much like we can parallel this to cigarette companies back in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and even 90s, but I firmly believe that they are targeting their new clientele, right? Yes. Building brand loyalty by bringing in kids. And they know that it will be an increase in their revenue, that these kids will become teenagers and will become adults who will continue to use Weight Watchers throughout their life. And that they are building lifelong consumers of their product. There's a quote from the CEO, former CEO, not the current CEO, where he said at a shareholder meeting that our ideal client enrolls four to six times. Mm. They're banking on our failure. So that's my first one is that this is about the bottom line. This has nothing to do with wellness. This has nothing to do with caring for our nation's children. This is about the bottom line for their corporation, period. The other part is if we look at research that shows risk factors for developing eating disorders – Dieting and childhood dieting is probably one of the highest things that show up on that list. And if we're getting eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds hooked on this behavior, there's a very high chance that a lot of them, unfortunately, are going to walk in Opal's doors <laughs> in 10 years. Right. And, and which is sad. Yes. Right? And- you know, I think the third thing for me is that it's completely unethical and does harm. Right. There's no research that shows that long-term weight loss is going to be sustained. Children are going to grow into their body and their body is going to be what it is. I think it's very unethical and harmful to teach our children that their bodies are not okay starting at the age of eight. In response to Aaron's the last statement in regards to just letting, like, kids will grow into their bodies. I That is what is the most harmful, I think, about especially the targeting of these young, prepubescent, about on the cusp of youth, that that is exactly what we naturally need to do is to grow into our bodies. And that means the awkward, clunky, weird, unpredictable everything that comes along with that prepubescent into pubescent time. And that is what's so scary to me is that the the intervention of uh, Weight Watchers in that season 
is not at all allowing for the natural biological processes. And it just tells that child that that, a, that child will never know what their body was supposed to be. And that is when I, when I can have a client that at least went through puberty and then they come into the office and they have like some memory of like, oh, yeah, my body was like that before my eating disorder. That's one thing like that. That gives them some vision for what may have been their natural body. But doing this so early, it, it gives nobody any landing place. And it just allows them to be so confused. <laughs> you know, I, I, have you noticed, too, that recently more and more folks in my office are saying, yeah, Weight Watchers was my first oh, yes. diet, oh, yeah. right? Yes. And like, I've heard that for and years. How, and how many clients are really like, triggered by this, you know, right. and like really having a hard time, like saying like, wow, yeah, I remember Weight Watchers was like my entry point into this world. And it's really sad. And yeah. the hard part is there's, I think this is changing, but I think for, for right now we are still the minority voice. Yeah. That there's a lot of folks out there that see this as a very positive thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what's even harder. Yeah. The well-intentioned parents, the well-intentioned physicians, the well-intentioned teachers are still directing people to something that has, you know, decades and decades and decades of exposure and experiences that people still somehow hold some hope in, in this, the diet offerings, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever, you know, Weight Watchers specifically, but just any of the diet, people are still holding hope in that even though there's not been any evidence that it's effective or helpful to move people into to health and sustainable health, that's for sure. And I think people are seeing some of that cycle. I think the voice is being heard. But I, I do want to say that, okay, at the corporate level, I don't know what's going on there, but I think that at the day-to-day, there are so well-intentioned people that just haven't been exposed to an alternative perspective. And so then they're trying their best. They don't know about all their implicit fat phobia and all their bias. Mm-hmm. And so they just continue to just do what is the norm. And it's causing so much harm and damage. And I, I, I guess the hope that I would have in it is just that there would be, hopefully, this new uproar, too, would allow for people at least to pause. And even those that don't uh, subscribe to even intensely to the diet world and diet culture can react to the young yeah. target with this. And I think that that might get more ears to hear the alternative perspectives. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, the, the age bracket there is just so disturbing to me, particularly to think about puberty and the reproductive health and knowledge that a child, a girl should be gaining at that age in particular. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that doesn't even happen. But to <laughs> to replace that with an app that is supposed to help you track points, yeah. right? Do they yeah. call them points, no, it, they, calories? No. So, so, that, so the app is like um, no. like a stoplight system, right? So it's red, yellow, yeah. green. You know, it's it might say like, oh, less red food now, right? Focus on some more yellow and green food. It's categorizing yeah. the good and bad foods kind it of sounds back like to a that. game too, right? <laughs> oh, you can totally gamify it. Yeah. The same way people are gamifying their their Fitbit, right? right. Or all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. There's so many disturbing levels to this. I mean, (laughs) another one is the fact that, you know, for me to think about an eight-year-old with a phone is bizarre anyways, but to think about an eight to 12-year-old having a phone or an app that they are able to use privately to 
start establishing these sort of private or compulsive recording behaviors or tracking behaviors in the same way that we would be disturbed by someone being alone on Snapchat at 15. You know, it's kind of disturbing to think about this the compulsive behavior in tracking this stuff that could happen privately without the eyes of anybody else and then the implications of that. We know how addictive that is. So then you're getting a obsessive sort of compulsive tendency toward your phone and it's linked with your eating behaviors. If it's just and probably appearance and weight, right. yeah, weight and social yeah. acceptance right, right, right. and like all of that that all gets lumped in there. I know. Uh, yeah. And Carter, I'm glad you bring that up because that was also one of my initial thoughts was so many of the conversations I'm having with parents, Aaron and I just had it. I just asked him, okay, wait, you're from the video gaming world and you love video games. What kind of screen parameters do you have for your kids? You know, <laughs> so many conversations with parents about right. all of those boundaries and how we're navigating it. And when do you get them the actual smartphone? When do you not? And so that was one of my first thoughts too. I was like, okay, wait a minute. So if it's an eight-year-old, I'll go with eight because 12 is actually a little bit different. There's a lot of 12-year-olds out there with smartphones. Totally true. But an eight-year-old, I don't know any eight-year-olds with smartphones, actually, if I'm going to, I have children in that category, right? But I don't know any. So that means, right, if we think about this, that means that it is obviously very much with the parent. They're getting the facial expressions with the parents. They're getting the connection, the bond with the parent. They're, that is just that. It's just the same as going to Weight Watchers as a kid with your parent, um, which is what my clients have said for decades is what the beginning of their eating disorder, right, is dieting with their mom or their dad. So I just think about that piece of going, okay, what's more important, getting the green, yellow, red on your phone or the head nods and the smiles and yep. the affection from your mom. Well, yeah. goodness gracious, of course it's the person, right? So it's not just about the electronics. It also is because these young people, this is a connection point with their family. I think I would want to know, considering how difficult it is to just sit with this idea of Kerbo being out there, like what what can parents do and what could kids do to be having a different experience of food? You know, I think what's really important is you know, p- first off, parents being able to sit with their own vulnerability around bodies and and their child's bodies growing into themselves. And speaking as a parent with twins who are 11, almost 12, right in that wheelhouse, right. it's really interesting to see how each of my kids navigate bodies. And one of the things that we do a very intentional job of doing in our house is we're talking about offices being safe spaces. How do we make our home a safe space Mm -hmm. for bodies? And I think that's one thing parents can try to do is how do you create a safe space in your house where your children can come in and say, I'm feeling really uncomfortable in my body today. Right. Obviously in child's language. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, but like this happened today and I feel horrible in my body. Yeah, I I want to I want you to and as a parent to be able to say I want to hear all about it. Yeah. There's nothing to fix, right? Your body is not a problem that needs to be fixed. Your body is your body. We love your body and and you know, using whatever sort of resources are available to help reinforce that aside from words, but also to say like then let's talk about it. It's taken a lot of work for for us as as parents to do that for our kids, but it's it's well worth it. When those things come up, not not that they have to talk about it right then, right? But that we can always circle back later, right? When our energy levels are a little bit calmer and discuss it mm-hmm. and discuss like, what are the implications of all of this? Mm-hmm. 
I think, too, the, to parent listeners, I would say that sometimes those conversations that might happen or a kid says something could be 30 seconds to, like, 90 seconds. Totally. And to just be – I mean, my husband's always like, fewer words, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm talking to myself here. Yeah. But just allow them to be short and succinct and allow the child to circle back when they're ready for more, yeah. too. I always want to take the one opportunity. Oh, my gosh, they said something about their body. I want to respond, you know, and just recognize, okay, we can have a lot of short conversations, too. And there can yeah. there can be a tone of, I want to talk about this, that then they know they'll come back for the yeah. next safe conversation. What's interesting is, you know, for, my family should be a case study for someone because, <laughs> because really like they, they will, our kids will have from a very early age picked up on both friends, families, but also other people like within our social circle who are really engaged in diet culture and they're like, oh yeah, like this person doesn't eat that. Do you know that? I'm like, no, why? <laughs> I don't know. But like the, they're not eating that. I was like, yeah, that, that must feel be really hard for them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy we have all the things in our house, right? Oh, yeah. You know, and like I know there's going to be some people listening who are just dipping their toes into some of this stuff and, and are like, that sounds great, but does it really work? And my answer is yes. Like my son, he has like a snack shop in his bedroom. A snack shop? Yeah, like literally he like just has one area of his of his bedroom that is full of snacks. Cute. There are snacks that he likes. And they they literally sit there all the time. And he doesn't like binge on them. He doesn't go crazy on them. He might have one every other day, once a week, whatever. It's not like he wakes up at two in the morning and all of a sudden it's gone. Right. Like he has all of these foods like in his bedroom. Mm -hmm. And he just picks at them when he wants them. Because he, he knows that we're going to trust him. Mm -hmm. And he knows that we're not going to hide them, that those foods are not bad. And he also knows when he's had enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love my, my kids away at camp. And I know Aaron's kids also go to camp in the summer. But way at camp and he has a certain amount of money in the little honey hut, which is where you go and get snacks at snack time. And I love that. I love so much independence and his able to, ability to work it out and figure it out for himself. He's got a fanny pack he carries around so that he can have the snacks and the stuff with him. And he was like known for that after camp last year. And I love it because I just think that he yeah. can, you know, there's different ways that the structure of life and school and schedule and family and who grocery shopped and who got what, it gets in the way of some of the natural instincts. And I just love that at camp, he gets to really, truly just go and be. And I mean, we don't have unlimited funds in the honey hut, mind you. So he maybe has, <laughs> he has the budget. The he has hut. to do budgeting, which is actually okay too. <laughs> we have a $3,000 bill from, <laughs> from the honey hut. Do you yeah. know what, do you know what that is? Yeah. By the way, to see a $3,000 bill on for the honey hut would yeah. just be amazing. Yeah, by itself. it would be really <laughs> good. Sounds really fun. <laughs> right? what, what's the honey hut? Um, <laughs> I have one other story yes. related to camp that yeah, feels sure. related to this body shame, like how to create a culture of having our kids be able to be sensitive to not body shame themselves, but also their friends. Okay, so you know the blob at camp? So like a big inflatable... Yes mattress think of that in the water and then there's a tower above it and the kid oh, yeah, yeah. there's one kid sitting at the end mm -hmm. of the big thing in the water mm -hmm. and then another kid jumps and then that catapults a kid out into the water right love it so fun love everything about it and there is a weight component to if the person that jumps on the blob is in a larger size body it throws the kid sitting on the mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. further so they get a more positive like mm -hmm. more you know, more of the more, more reward, you know? Yeah. 
Okay, so in preparation for this year at camp, my son was aware of one of his friends who's a larger size body who was also going to be at camp. And he's like, I want him to be in the blob. I want him to shoot me off the blob. And I just like was trying to tolerate that. And I decided to really talk to him about it straight up because I couldn't. Yes. So I tried my darndest to have this conversation. And my child, the way that he's wired, felt like he had already made a bad decision, like that he had already done something wrong. Mm -hmm. And all I was trying to do was to have him have insight into the fact that that child, yeah. I, I basically my, my message to him was, how can you help that child have just as much fun as you do? So how about you say, hey, let's go on the blob and let's bring our counselor to go behind you. So I'll go, then you go, and then the counselor will go, mm -hmm. and we'll all have an awesome blob experience. Yeah. And I was trying to gear him up that, and he, he just... Yeah, he went too far into I did something wrong already, but I'm just trying to help him have the insight into how to care and love this kid in a larger size body and have him not be only admired and enjoyed for, for launching. For launching. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to be one of the launchies. Right? Yeah. So what do you think about that, Aaron? What did yeah. I do wrong? No, listen, I think, well, first off, you had the conversation. I so know. there's nothing wrong but about it. But I had too many words. My husband was like, stop talking. <laughs> but But again, I think- even though our intention was good, the impact might be hard yeah. on the other person. Yeah. I think it's a human nature to sort of say, I feel bad about that. Yeah. Right? So in many of yeah. the, the talks that I've been in where we talk about race and we talk about white supremacy, I feel bad. Right? As a straight white male, I feel bad. I, this is part of all of the things that I've grown up with systematically that I benefit from that other people do not benefit from. So I think it's natural for your son to feel bad. Right. Right. And so like if we embrace that mm -hmm. and say, yeah, can you imagine just think about other parts in your friend's life that might be hard for him? Yeah. And the best thing you can do, right, is give him again, it's like a, a 10 year old relationship. Right. I know. But just, but but saying like, listen, I, I just want to hang out with you. Like, doesn't, yes. It doesn't matter if you launch me or not, not. Right. These are all the things that I love doing with you, regardless of, of the body you're in. But I think I think it would be natural to feel bad. Like, oh, I. Maybe I'm using this person, right? But I think also like using that as a way to like say, yeah, it's okay. And this is how we also learn to be sensitive to it yeah. as we grow up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. It's okay. I, I know that as a parent, I don't want him to feel bad. And you're right. It's like we need to feel bad yeah. about the things we should feel bad about. Yes. So that's the only way for him to understand. I just don't think that he had already gone down all of it. He was just like you yeah. say, using like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to have him blob. And I, yeah. I, I was recognizing the pattern that that could ensue for that kid at camp this week. And I was like, be aware of it. Don't yes. let him be only the only fun at the blob station. Right. You know. Oh, thanks. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. Good. We, I've loved talking to you. And I have a feeling that our listeners would love to listen to you yeah. talk more. Yeah. Um, can you share a little bit more about yeah. how they could find you? Yeah. So I co-hosted podcast called Dietitians Unplugged. It's not just for dietitians. It's just two dietitians literally getting unplugged and just talking, <laughs> much like this. And my co-host is Glennis Oyston, and we're both in LA. And so you can check that out on anywhere you get your podcast. We're on Spotify. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play, all over the place. 
And then I also have a private practice in Calabasas, which is a suburb of LA. And I have two different URLs. One of them is smashthewaitriarchy.com. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so you can find me there. That goes right to my website. Uh, and I'm on all the social medias. I'm at Aaron Flores RDN. I love that. I feel so struck by how you seem to be creating some really cool little pockets in different places. Even, even thinking about you having smashed the waitriarchy in Calabasas, land of the Kardashians. I'm like, <laughs> damn. It's awesome. <laughs> it, 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 so much of what much of this I think is a, is a rebellion. Yeah, I love Star Wars, <laughs> and uh, and and this is um, this is a rebellion. And to quote Star Wars, is rebellions are built on hope. Yeah, and I think that there is um, a lot of hope here. And when I find people who are in this rebellion, also it feels really good. It it does. It feels good to talk to you too, and yeah. to get to hear that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who have been listening. Um, if you want to follow along with Aaron, we will make sure to get some links in our description box so you can find him more easily. If you want to follow along with us, you can find us on social media at Opal Foodandbody, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. To learn more about our programming, check out opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you so much to Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for all of our amazing editing. Join us next time. Bye.